0: This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. Views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of AdWord via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Today we get to sit down with Dr. Hardy, an osteopathic primary care physician, to discuss the different treatment options for patients with HIV and the importance of eliminating any stigmas about certain at-risk populations. First off, Dr. Hardy, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. I think this will be a very beneficial podcast for a lot of people to listen to. And I want to first start out and have you explain to us really what the difference is between HIV and AIDS.
1: Sure. Thank you so much for, first of all, having me on. Um, I look forward to being able to discuss this with you all and hopefully uh, make some sense and maybe make this part of your practice. So the big difference between the two, so I always say HIV or AIDS per se is a progression form of HIV. So HIV being human immunodeficiency virus. This is the disease that potentially eliminates the effectiveness of your immune system, therefore making you more susceptible to other infections. Opposed to AIDS or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, the difference between that is that it's a virus that leads to infection. So... AIDS is a condition also known as stage 3 HIV, and then, of course, you make this diagnosis by a CD4 count, CD4 count less than 200, now we say we're in the criteria of of AIDS. Let me just do a quick review of, I guess, of our initial antiretroviral regimens that we usually would treat for HIV and AIDS. We're going to have a nucleoside, nucleotide, reverse transcriptase inhibitor, along with a third agent, which could... Consist of a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, or a protease inhibitor, or a intragase strand transfer inhibitor.
0: It seems like a lot of those drugs, what you're prescribing for those, those are um, case-by-case really, just depends on the patient. And then you mentioned it earlier um, about the PrEP and PEP programs, and could you just uh, explain to us and for those who don't know really what, what those two things are as well?
1: Sure prep therapy well, let's discuss that one first that one's actually relatively new so a little background on it um Truvada, which is the medication that we use for prep therapy there's another one that i mentioned here shortly but uh Truvada, also known as tenavir uh, desprodoxel fumarate plus with a intracerbine that together makes trivada was actually approved by the fda in 2004 for uh, part of a management protocol for HIV. And then in July of 2012, we actually started using it for PrEP therapy or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And then when we talk about PEP therapy real quick, it's just post-exposure prophylaxis. This is probably one majority of you all that are listening have probably heard about before. If you're in the hospital and you get a needle stick or if there's some contamination with blood products, maybe say while you're scrubbing it on a surgery, then we're talking about using PEP therapy. Which this, you wanna get it started within seven, two hours, obviously the sooner the better. And then you're gonna stay on this regimen for either once a day or twice a day for approximately a month and say 28 days.
0: You mentioned these different medications and drugs. Could you go ahead and explain to us what the different classes of these drugs are in? Just for those who don't know, just a brief overview of what those classes are.
1: Sure. Actually, both of the medications that's in Truvada itself are going to be in that NRTI, or that nucleoside-nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Both of those medicines, like I said, in the Truvada medication for PrEP therapy. Basically, the way those are going to work is we go back to, I guess, our biochem. When we're going from RNA to DNA, there is a transcriptase enzyme that's there, and a reverse transcriptase inhibitor obviously blocks that transcriptase, so therefore that virus now can't go from RNA to DNA, therefore allowing it to replicate in the body.
0: And, and that's really what's unique, it seems like, about HIV and uh, even a few of those other viruses in that family is that ability to do a reverse transcription.
1: And I did forget, there is a discovoy is another uh, PrEP therapy that's out there. The biggest difference with this one, there hasn't been a lot of studies as it relates to contraction of HIV via receptive vaginal intercourse. You would think that would be one that was studied. However, in the studies, that was not in there. So. They're both good. They're both on the market. Truvada is the one that's the most studied. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the one that's used the majority of the time. So I want to make sure we cover that.
0: Uh, That's really cool that they have these drugs that target that specific mechanism. You mentioned a little bit about the mechanisms of action and then just a little bit broader of a topic and more practical. Could you start talking about who these medications are for and really how any medical students are going to see this in their future practice?
1: The treatment's basically for anyone who's having an at-risk sexual event. So we automatically think of a MSN, men that have sex with men, a homosexual relationship, rectal-penile interaction, but it actually could be in a heterosexual relationship, someone who may have multiple partners. And then the one that we often forget about are those individuals that are IV drug users that maybe share equipment. Maybe they share needles, and there's been a lot of um, needle take back programs that you'll see in a lot of health departments for this reason. So we have a lot of people that are maybe in a heterosexual relationship or heterosexual relationships, but they use IV drugs and they share needles or equipment, and therefore they can transmit to HIV that way as well.
0: Could you explain to us kind of the, the success rates of these drugs? Obviously, there's a, it seems like there's a lot of good studies that are done on these drugs, and whether it be your experience or just what a lot of the uh, literature states about these drugs.
1: The best thing about these medications is that once you have them, they're relatively easy. You, you take it every day as long as you are technically in this high-risk sexual encounter or encounters. You always wanna make sure you counsel your patients on the utilization of condoms, because obviously these drugs do not protect you against STIs, so there's always a risk there still. So make sure you wanna say, hey, you need to use a condom, safe sexual practices, in addition to, and we're gonna stick with Truvada in this case, taking Truvada. Now for those individuals uh, that are thinking about um, exposure or success rate of the medication, it's about 99% for those via sexual activities, and then it's about 74% for those individuals that are involved with um, IV drug using uh, exposures. Um, this
0: may be a little bit of a hard question to answer, but if someone is using a, a drug or is, especially an illegal substance, um, and they hear that it's only 74% effective, how do we you know, go one step forward to kind of provide uh, the encouragement to go through with the treatment like that?
1: You're right, that is a, that's a tough uh, question to answer. You would never hear your provider, or you go to a clinic and say, well, just make sure you're using clean needles. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the big risk factors, mm-hmm. is using old needles. Once again, with those needle take-back programs, you'll go to a clinic and they're distributing you needles. The thought is, you're going to use, irrespective if I offer you a needle or not, so why don't I decrease your risk of disease processes and in this case talking about HIV developing into AIDS by giving you a clean unused needle as you go into inject your drug of choice versus using the same old needle and maybe you and I both sharing needles which increases our risk exponentially mm-hmm. right and that's the reason why they have that 74 percent.
0: Makes sense and then obviously something a lot of people don't want to talk about but it's very important for um, patients is the cost of this uh, medication and if there are programs for um, people that can't afford something like this to be able to have access to a very important drug
1: this is probably the, the downside of, of this topic not the medication not the patient but the topic in general is the fact that the medication is very expensive we're talking roughly anywhere between 50 to 70 dollars per tablet Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty serious. Yeah, so you're looking at maybe even 2000 bucks just for one prescription. Now, fortunately, there are a lot of programs out there. Now you have to see if you're going to be able to qualify. Meaning, if you were to take this medication for, let's say, roughly seven days, it can protect you against receptive anal intercourse. And we're talking 21 days of taking this medication for max management for receptive vaginal and IV drug use. So it doesn't take long for this medication to get into the system and actually show its benefit, show its worth. So the reason why that's important is because when we're talking about actually getting our patients access to the medications, the faster that we can get the medication started, the best opportunity we have to decrease in their risk of developing HIV. Now there are a couple of programs out there, and I pretty much use the CDC as a source to get some of these, mm-hmm. uh, some of these programs. Some of these are national or nationwide. Uh, some of these are regional. So state depending, there is a website that you can go to. and It's uh, called nastad.org, then backslash prep cost hyphen resources backslash prep hyphen assistance hyphen programs. So that's state dependent. Then you're going to have some that are copay assistant which is basically going to be GILAD which is the name of the drug company so G-I-L-E-A-D advancingaccess.com all one word so GILAD advancingaccess.com and then the other resource that I was able to identify is Med Assistant Program and they have a getyourprep.com, or the phone number is 855-447-8410. In our office, uh, we do have some medication assistant programs, be it that it's a community health center. Um, so we try to make sure that we can find these medications for the individuals that obviously need it the most. And once again, I wanna, I wanna reiterate, it's not just for individuals that are in same-sex relationships. Um, It can be individuals that are in a heterosexual relationship, but they have multiple partners, or they're an IV drug user. And for the students out there, could you
0: explain to us really the best way to go about screening for these patients, especially being that not only is it a hard topic to cover, but it's also a very sensitive topic for the patient to talk about, and also the fact that it requires pretty timely uh, treatment to have effective care.
1: First of all, if this isn't something that's in your wheelhouse, for whatever reason right and there's a lot of stigmas that come with prescribing prep therapy you got to make sure that you are educating your patient what's out there and available to them that's the first and foremost most important thing now i am new in as far as getting into prep management uh, because i see that there's such a huge need Um, we often think of medication assistance programs so mat We think of now primary care doctors are taking care of a lot of individuals that have hepatitis C, right? Often we're getting hepatitis C from needle-based manipulation, right? Be it tattoos or drug use and things of that nature. They all fall within this category of PrEP therapy. So you have to be really careful, and I want to be very appropriate when I say this, you have to be very careful if you're wanting to manage one population, but not the other population. That may be individuals, once again, same-sex relationships. So if you're going all in and it's beneficial to your patient, then you go all in. Um, So for me, I say it's a mindset, first of all, and then getting knowledgeable about the subject. It's not that hard to get someone started or give them the information they need so that they can get the protection that's due to them. So what do we do? Obviously, we talk about this in medical school, history, history, history. Asking the hard questions, I always say there's not really a hard question to ask when you're in the encounter. It's more so of, When you're in the doctor's office, there's no question that's not appropriate to ask in the office. And I tell my patients that, especially new patients, I say, I wanna get to know you, I'm gonna ask you questions that I feel are pertinent for me to get to know you better so I can treat you the best way that I can. And once again, I always say, this is a democracy. I give you information and it's up to you to do what you want to do with it. Um, And it's hard not to pass judgment. Why in the world would you put yourself in this situation? Change that to say, what in the world can I do to help you when you're in that situation?
0: Right, that's a good, really good way of looking at it.
1: So, to answer, it was kind of a long filibuster, but a long way to, to answer your question in regards to the labs. What do we want to do? So after you get your history, you find out this individual, or individuals, it depends on how many come into your office, are at risk. So obviously we want to screen and make sure they don't have active HIV, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, or are an HIV infection, okay? So we do that. We also want to do a hepatitis panel. Okay, look for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, etc. And we also want to check a BNP because we want to keep an eye out on the creatinine. The medications for prep management can affect the kidneys so we want to make sure the kidneys as a baseline they're in good shape and then you're going to do this every three months you're going to have them come back do the same blood work again then you re-prescribe the medication so these prescriptions are prescribed on a three month basis that's what most of the studies have found beneficial to keep an eye on the patient and most of the patients are very receptive the ones that i see are very receptive to making sure that they come in for their appointments because they know they need to receive their medication so they can live their life and do what they need to do.
0: Right, and, and it seems like the most uh, important thing for medical students and um, really any physicians is just understanding that you would be, uh, at least the way I think about it, is you would be doing yourself and your patient, especially your patient, a disservice in treating them if you didn't do your job and ask these hard questions and really you know, start digging deep and really, like you said, get to know them.
1: Absolutely. Everyone who comes to my office is someone who's at risk, unless I ask the question. Because mm-hmm. once again, once we get out of the mindset that it's a select group of patients, it could be somebody you work with, and you know that they're married in a heterosexual relationship, but they got stressors, so they start maybe getting into some opioids, or they get into some other drugs and heroin, et cetera, so they start using IV drugs. Mm-hmm. They come to work every day, they look normal, but little do you know they're using IV drugs, and they're sharing those, right? They fall within this category right you know someone who is opened up to you and they are in a same-sex relationship so you say yes that person's at risk for sure but you ask the questions are you in a monogamous relationship if you're in a monogamous relationship and neither you nor your partner have HIV you're not gonna get HIV it's when you go outside of that relationship what makes it hard so you have to ask are you in a monogamous relationship most people when I ask them that they say yes mm-hmm. and then I ask the follow-up question which is the hard one I would say how about your partner Is your partner monogamous? And if they hedge even the slightest, then we dig deeper. Sometimes they say, oh, no, they're definitely not. I say, well, would you still like to be tested just in case? So I treat it like I would any young man who comes in for an annual physical. He's at the appropriate age. Hey, there's certain screenings that I should offer this individual or a female patient should be offering her screening as part of a physical exam if you're sexually active. And then that kind of opens up the conversation a little bit.
0: I like that. And you can kind of share what you, what you want from this question, but um, you've mentioned a little bit about your experience in your clinic, but could you expand upon any kind of stuff that you've experienced while prescribing this drug, whether it be how well it's treated the patients or how people respond to it, or just providing us a little bit of a background from your experience with these programs?
1: I like to think that I know or I'm prepared when I go into the clinic and oftentimes I get the opportunity to learn something from the patient. So for me personally, I was actually made aware of this through a patient that was driving a couple of states away to get the medication, because he couldn't find anyone that would be able to help him. And we got to talking in the office, and I said, you know what, let me read up about this so I can be prepared to answer your questions. And if you don't mind coming back, then I would like to follow up with you and see maybe this is something that we could offer in our office. So, I spent some time and read on it, and the patient came back in about a month because I wanted to do an adequate job of learning about this treatment option for patients. And then I realized there's a, there's a, there's a huge population out there that would benefit from this, opposed to the obvious, once again, people that are in same sex relationships. That's usually what we think about when we go to this, and that's usually where the biggest stigma comes from. Right. Right? If you or I were on rounds and you poked your finger in a surgical procedure, I wouldn't hedge on making sure you get PEP therapy, so post-exposure prophylaxis. I give it to you once or twice a day, right? And then for that 28-day time period, wouldn't think anything of it. However, if I'm giving you something ongoing, like Truvada ongoing, then that's when it makes it a little bit, well, why do you keep putting yourself at risk? Well, yeah, that's a question you should ask. Mm -hmm. You know, do you understand the risk? That's what I say. Mm -hmm. Do you understand the risk of being involved with this behavior or the sexual experience or experiences. Long as you're aware of the, the risk factors with it, if that's something that, once again, that I can treat or I know someone who can treat you, then we try to try to make it happen for the patient.
0: And then kind of wrapping things up here, I think uh, we we like to end our podcast and just with a pretty generic question, but just for a lot of the medical students, is there any advice that you can give, whether it be related to this topic or not, just something completely unrelated, any advice that you can give to the medical students and just the future physicians that are training out there, um, like any advice that you can pass on to them?
1: Medical school is hard and it's not always a direct reality of what's to come. Being a physician is something you should have pride in being a physician is something that you obviously aspire to become as you go through the four years of medical school and three or more years in your training you have to figure out what you're going to make a part of your practice no matter what specialty you're in you have to make and have to figure out what you're going to make part of your practice so that you want to go to work every day Maybe it's a teaching component. Maybe it's treat, treating a high-risk population. Maybe it's treating a population that's very comfortable and very low-risk. That's okay. Everyone can benefit from your opportunity to provide them health care. So find out what works for you with time, and then you practice that each and every day, and you become a master at your craft. Some of the best advice I ever got was from my sister. She said, know what you know, but know what you don't know. And then you try to figure that part out. So I kind of live by that motto, and I love that. I didn't know a lot about PrEP therapy, so I educated myself, became comfortable, and now I can go and hopefully affect change in the New River Valley.
0: Well, awesome, and I, I think you've done the same for a lot of the medical students here as well, including myself, but I, I thank you for having, sitting down and having this conversation with us, and I hope to do it again soon sometime. But I appreciate it, Dr. Hardy.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me.
0: For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it, and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.